please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's word. Uh, the text from this morning is from Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, and the text will be on the screen as I read. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church. Children are being dismissed for Children's Church, and a reminder to parents to pick them up right before, right after you take communion. If you're visiting today, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity City Church, and you are jumping into a sermon series on the book of Revelation. We started at the beginning in Revelation uh, 1. We're uh, kind of tipping over to the second half of uh, the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 15, which includes a vision of another series of seven. We've seen seven seals broken on a scroll. We've seen it We've heard seven uh, trumpets that were blown by angels, and now we see seven bowls that are poured out in these visions that John had uh, about uh, things that are and the things that are to come. Next week, uh, we're taking a break from the book of Revelation. We have a guest preacher that will be coming here, uh, and it's one of our global partnerships that we have with a pastor and a newly planted church in uh, the Czech Republic. And uh, he's coming here, the lead pastor who uh, planted that church is going to be coming here to preach uh, God's word. And we got to partner with them in an exciting way last year where they were uh, in the hunt for purchasing uh, property in their downtown area. It's a, it's a smaller town in, in Czech that's about 50,000 people, a college town uh, that they are doing ministry in. And, and there isn't church buildings in this specific uh, city, so what they ended up purchasing was a hotel uh, that had a nice lobby area that is now turned into a sanctuary. So we got to be a part of donating to that effort for them to acquire that property, along with a bunch of other uh, churches in St. Paul, Minneapolis, that got to collaborate with him. Um, and he does have a connection here in Minnesota, and he's probably going to talk about that a little bit next week. So I encourage you to, to come and to, to see what God is doing uh, among other countries of the world and to see how the gospel is expanding. After next week, after that break from the book of Revelation, we only have five weeks left of Revelation. Uh, and so we're going to get to the end here in the, the month of June. I know some of you are, are not only waiting for Jesus to come back, but waiting for the end of the series. Uh, so that's probably exciting for you. Others, I, I know, and most of you have been at least intrigued to, to see a, a way, an approach to understanding, especially the theology of the book of Revelation, which is what we've been up to. Uh, there's a lot of different debates, as I've been saying, about how to interpret the book of Revelation. And in some of those interpretive uh, determinations I had to make in, in, in terms of being able to organize this sermon, but one of the big things that we're emphasizing is how these visions function uh, for saints throughout the ages to be able to look at what's ahead of you, to look at the past, the present, and the future through the lens of the gospel, and to be able to unmask the things you see in light of the, the penetrating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the emphasis that we have been having through this, throughout this series. So let's go ahead and pray 
and then dive into this next series of seven, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Let's pray. Lord, I am always so grateful that you gather uh, people on Sunday, not only in this local congregation, but through congregations throughout the globe. You gather your people because Jesus died and rose again. And that matters. It matters for how we view the past, present, and history, and, and the future in our history. It matters, Lord, for what we are facing right now or what we think we will be facing ahead. We want to see all of what's around us, and we want to see into our own soul with the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So give us the, the grace and the ability through your Holy Spirit to do that right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that uh, came to mind for me about the book of Revelation, even before we chose to, to preach it as a congregation, is the many, many things that might come to one's mind when you think about the book of Revelation, maybe the different ways that you've been exposed to it over the years. And one of the things that, that I think of with the book of Revelation, uh, especially being in numerous situations where you're exposed to different church traditions, you're exposed to different interpretive approaches, is that people that uh, go through the book of Revelation and study it, they love a good chart, a good graphic about the book of Revelation. Now, the folks I know that are tuning in on the live stream, you won't be able to see this, but we have a couple examples of what they will look like here on the screen. So one, uh, oh, that one's smaller, but there you go. You can kind of see it. And one of the things that I think that immediately comes to mind, at least then this is why I chose this one, is this is busy. There's a lot going on. Uh, this probably would be a person that wouldn't get hired to do uh, graphic design professionally, uh, but this pastor or this theologian took a shot at it. And uh, one of the things that I think I've come to appreciate about the book of Revelation, I used to just think these things were hilarious, and I guess I still do, but the, the thing that I've come to appreciate about the book of Revelation is even though I might not share exactly the same interpretive approach as the person who created this chart, is that the book of Revelation is kind of this busy. Like, whatever's been happening in my mind over the last uh, several weeks tends to start to look like that, and then you have to try to translate it into a coherent sermon. Now, at least you think that uh, even me, uh, think, that I think I'm personally above this. Uh, this next example of another uh, Revelation chart, that one, is actually the one that I sent to community group leaders. It's attached to a video to try to simplify uh, the book of Revelation through an overview. So that's another one, and this is actually more of an interpretive approach that I share. Uh, uh, not exactly, but it roughly I do, but that's how that person tried to capture it in a graphic. Now, again, like I want to emphasize, I'm trying not to say that I'm above any of this. In fact, what happened to me this week is I was trying to piece together um, the, this section of Revelation, especially Revelation 16, this, uh, this other image of these, these bowls that are being poured out in this vision, and trying to figure out how does it connect with the wider book of Revelation. And so as I was doing that, I was like, I was on my notebook, I started drawing a chart. And I was like, I get it now. I get why people do this because I'm trying to like get this complicated thing in Revelation and you're trying to put it uh, to some type of word picture to kind of wrap your mind around it. And so that 
that happened to me. And, and to be clear, both the f folks that whoever were behind those graphics that I just showed you are far better at graphic design than me. Uh, and so again, uh, just to be humble about it, I am in this sermon going to eventually show you the two graphics I came up with, uh, just to self-deprecate myself a little bit here. Uh, but we're not only going to do that, I'm hoping to share all those to you to kind of give you an, an overview of where we're at and maybe some of the big themes of the book of Revelation, and then hopefully to show you where this next vision fits into it. Uh, and to see the similarities and the differences. And then uh, for the last part of the sermon, we'll look at the, the vision itself, the seven bowls judgment, especially maybe the things that are unique about this vision compared to the other ones, all right? So I have a couple charts that I came up with. So let me talk through one of them. And again, if you're tuning in at home, you don't get to see this. So hopefully just the verbal commentary will do. So this is one of the ones I came up with. Again, uh, my, my deacon of creative arts is probably just uh, lamenting a little bit in his heart right now, looking at my skills. But this is, this is what I came up with in my head. Uh, the middle has this line, and that really shows that the book of Revelation is looking at all of Scripture and the storyline of Scripture from creation to the cross of Jesus Christ and also how, how history and how scripture ends in the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new city. And so one of the big things that happens in the book of Revelation is you see these visions is that you see yourself within this story. You're in the story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation and you get caught up into that reality that you're part of God's unfolding plan, and especially as it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. A big part of that uh, plan and seeing yourself in plan is all the thick Old Testament imagery that the book of Revelation is drawing on, and not only that, but the theology of Christ has come and has accomplished great things in his death and resurrection, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that already not yet tension is really, really dominant in the book of Revelation, and you're caught up in that. So that's, that's where that kind of creation, new creation line is getting at, is that it's, there's a storyline that Revelation is a part of. The other thing that you see is that you have these two entities that are on different sides of the, whether they are for the gospel or against it, and that's the church and Babylon. Babylon, of course, is drawn from Old Testament imagery of a, of a literal city that existed that was, uh, that was an enemy of God's people, but in the book of Revelation, it symbolizes all these worldly systems that are opposed to God and his ways, and so the church is, has to learn how do you dwell in Babylon, how do you dwell in a place that has some hostility towards the church and the purposes of God? And then one of the big things you see throughout the visions in the book of Revelation is that there, there are two entities that are, are in battle against one another uh, that are on different sides of this as well. Behind the church, you have the triune God. Behind Babylon, you have the dragon. The dragon is identified in one of the visions as Satan, the devil, the great deceiver, adversary against God's people and God's plan. He has an entourage. There's a heavenly entourage that, that, uh, 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 that the dragon has with him, the sea beast and the land beast, which represent the power of, 
the, 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 the sea beast represents power, and the land beast, also called the false prophet, represents propaganda. The mission of these uh, beings is to build Babylon. That's called the great prostitute a little bit later in the book of Revelation. And they are trying to do that through allegiance to their ways and to worship the dragon. Their tactics in doing so is deceit, unrighteousness, power, war, and death. This is the, the, the evil that stands against God. But then you have the triune God that's behind the church. God is on the throne, as we saw in Revelation chapter 4. We have the slain lamb that's pictured, how he accomplishes God's purposes by laying down his life, and the seven spirits symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. God also has his heavenly entourage, angels and heavenly elders and four living creatures that are these seraphim and cherubims that are pictured in heaven. The mission of the triune God is to build the church, also called the Lamb's Army in the book of Revelation. They're witnesses of the gospel. They're the, the woman that flee, 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 flees to the uh, wilderness for God's protection. They are the seven lampstands, and they are not sealed with the mark of the beast, but they are sealed with the blood of the Lamb. And the mission of the triune God is to redeem people into that church with different tactics that, from which uh, that the dragon uses. The tactics of our God and the church are truth and righteousness or justice, sacrifice, peace, and life. So one of the things, again, this is my attempt at my own revelation chart, is to try to frame it. When you get caught up in these visions of revelation, this is what you're feeling. You're feeling that you're part of the grand story of God as it's unfolding, that you are the church living in Babylon, and that, that you have the triune God that has your back for his glory against these hostile powers that are, are coming at the church and will, will ultimately uh, have this great battle that's pictured at the end of the book of Revelation that will take place. All right, so that's one, uh, one graphic. Here's the other one. Um, I actually don't like this one as much, but whatever. Uh, here's, here's the other. I added color to this one, by the way, if you want to appreciate that. Those sevens are red, if you can appreciate that, um, just to highlight those a little bit. But one of the things, again, this isn't so much how to structure the whole book of Revelation, but I'm trying to picture in this little doodle that I had of how to really understand these series of seven that takes place right in the heart of Revelation. If you remember, at the first part of the book of Revelation, you have a prologue and you have this amazing vision of Christ himself that John has. You have these letters, seven letters that are detailed that are written to seven churches uh, that were, were active and doing ministry during the John's day. And then it goes to, in chapters 4 and 5, this great heavenly vision of God on the throne and the Lamb who is slain that is now uh, given the authority to open the scroll of God's purposes and God's plan. And then from that kind of first part of Revelation, you go into this middle section where you have these different visions of, of the Lamb opening the seven seals, angels blowing these seven trumpets, uh, and then before we get to the seven bulls, as we saw last couple weeks, there was this big battle that's highlighted how, how Team Dragon versus the Team Lamb is, is, a, is about to get into conflict and where Team Dragon comes from and their rise and also the rise of, of uh, the Lamb's army, the, the, the saints who lay down their life in sacrifice for the sake of peace. 
and then finally you get to the bowls. And one of the ways that I have been arguing that, that at least I view, and there's some debate about viewing Revelation this way, but how I view these series of seven, uh, and including that great cosmic battle that's highlighted there between Team Dragon and Team Lamb, is that each and every one of them are, are retelling uh, a different angle of a similar story because they all end with God's ultimate judgment. The seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all end with the seventh thing happening with this image of lightning and thunder and earthquake and hail, which all symbolizes God's ultimate judgment coming at the end of history. And then Team Dragon versus Team Lamb, that vision there has a different ending, but still it's pictured differently, but still it's God's ultimate judgment of fallen Babylon and the wine press of God's wrath. So, that's, that's kind of the middle part, and then uh, in the next uh, weeks to come, we get to see the ending of the book of Revelation, where it goes into much more detail of these visions about what exactly happens with that final battle between uh, the slain lamb and his army against dr the dragon and the beast, which finally culminates in a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so that's what's going on there. And it's so, there's this weird tension as you're going through these visions where it's repeating a lot of things, and maybe you've even felt that way with the sermons. It's like it's kind of the same message with different images, different, the same theological punch week after week after week. And part of that is intentional because it is driving home a very similar theological uh, point with each one of these visions, but also the visions are different. They're unique. They have a different angle on how to see these things. And there's also, not only, uh, not only are these images recycling a similar vision of history, but there's also kind of this buildup. There's this plot line that's happening as these, these armies are assembling and there's like this, this, this slain lamb and his, and his army of saints against the, the dragon and his armies uh, of beasts and that they're about to do battle and it's kind of building towards that. So there's both a recycling of these visions but also a plot line as well. That's how thick and amazing and majestic the book of Revelation is and why when any of us pastors or theologians try to put that into an image, why they get so complicated. But I want to, to show you how this um, book might... might uh, capture your attention in terms of what the grander framework is before we get into the vision of the seven bowls. As I mentioned before, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, three different images or visions rather that John has of different uh, events that are happening um, in this vision. The seven seals is the most unique out of the other ones. It's still structured with seven, so it, ends, it has that similarity with the trumpets and the bowls, and that they, the seven seals also ends with final judgment. Uh, the, if you remember, the seven seals is the one that, and, the, and none of the other images, uh, visions have this, has the four horsemen that show up in that vision. And the unique theological point of the seven seals that is that even when God's people face suffering, they are sealed by the blood of the Lamb and therefore protected by His care and His grace. Now you get to the seven trumpets and it has a lot of similarities with what you're about to see in the seven bowls. Uh, in that vision, the seven trumpets um, and the seven bowls share this background of, of the plagues of Exodus, uh, really giving the theological framework to what's happening. Uh, that has these images of, of, of God's wrath and judgment taking pla place on land and sea, rivers and springs, 
uh, the sun and darkness. All these things are showing up in, in similar ways in the, uh, the book or in the visions of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. But there's also still key differences. There's this intensifying that's happening between the two visions. The seven trumpets talks about how one-third of things are destroyed. The seven bowls vision is going to comp- talk about more like complete destruction. There's this intensifying that's happening between these visions. The other thing that I think is fun is like what some of the weird images that really stand out in the book of Revelation. If you remember in the vision of the seven trumpets, you have these demonic locusts that show up that come out of the abyss. In the seven bowls, you don't have locusts, but you have demonic frogs that you get to look forward to that we get to see in that vision. The seven trumpets has a slight, slightly different theological point. The point is that even though many people will not repent, we still are called as God's people to bear witness uh, to the gospel no matter what we face. And the seven bulls, as you will see here in a little bit, will also have a very similar point, but it's also distinct, and that's why it's a vision that's also unique from the other ones that we see. So let's go ahead and get into this vision itself, okay? Look at Revelation 16.1. This is the vision of the seven bulls. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. See, bowls are already used in different visions throughout the book of Revelation by these angelic priests. And they recall that these bowls are the bowls that hold God's people and the prayers of God's people. And they are referenced also in chapter 15, verse 7, as the, quote, golden bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. So how are these things are connected? Because they're connected with God's people praying something, and then it's, in a sense, God answering the prayer through his wrath. Revelation 16, 5 through 6 tells us what's going on. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So the point of these bowls that are being poured out are that these are God's judgments. And the judgments are just and they are true, and they're a just and true response to the persecution of God's people and the injustices in the world, God says, I will respond now with my justice and my wrath to these broken things that are happening in the world. So in a sense, this is how you can think about the ancient imagery of of pouring out a bowl, all right? It's probably the the ancient equivalent of a modern person saying something like opening a can, It's kind of the same thing if you think about it, but in this sense, the bowls are opening a can of God's wrath. That's what's happening. So that's a way to think about how these images are getting at a greater theological truth. God is about to open a can of his justice on the unjust world that's been persecuting his people and breaking things. So look at some of these uh, bowls as they're poured out, verses 2 through 4. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. The angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then jumping down to verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God 
who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and to glorify him. Like the plagues in Exodus, these are functioning as a way to disrupt everything that these worldly people are relying on, the idols that they worship, the things they find their security in. They're all being disruptive. And you'll note, just like the seven-trumpet image, that it's emphasizing that although these things are happening, they still refuse to repent. That's being repeated here as well. That's repeated again in the fifth bowl in verses 10 through 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. You see that emphasis there again. So here God is judging the sovereignty of the beast. You recall in the last vision that that the dragon gives the throne to the beast and now God is showing that he is not in charge. And the, the beast might rule in deceit, so it's fitting that God shows his judgment by plunging his evil kingdom into the judgment of darkness. And how do the people respond to this judgment? They're in agony, they say. They're in so much agony that they're gnawing on their tongues. What an intense image. You ever actually even just accidentally bite your tongue? That hurts. But they're gnawing on their tongue. They're in so much agony, so it shows how intense the situation is. But then it goes on to still emphasize they refuse to repent and glorify God. And then we come to the sixth bowl. The sixth bowl is poured out, uh, it says in the vision, on the river Euphrates. Like previous uh, visions, like the trumpet uh, visions, the Euphrates in the Old Testament is a place of destruction because it's where great empires come from this location in order to destroy others. So too the river is dried up here because war is about to happen. That's, the, that's the, what the, the imagery is getting at. But in the previous vision, in the trumpets, you get demon locusts. Here is where you get the demon frogs that are part of this vision. And these frogs are coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the, the sea beast and the false prophet, also known as the land beast. And these frog demons stir up war. Look at verses 14 and 16. These are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they gather the kings together in a place in Hebrew that's called Armageddon. Now there is a term that is somewhat popular in pop culture, isn't it? You've probably heard of the term Armageddon before and this is in the book of Revelation where it comes from. Maybe, and again, uh, you might have to be an older millennial or a Gen X to appreciate this reference, but there was a movie back in 1998 called Armageddon that was about uh, NASA sending some blue-collar workers who had experience and expertise in deep core drilling decided to send them into space so they could stop a gigantic asteroid from destroying Earth. And uh, to ruin the ending for you, Bruce Willis is indeed successful in stopping the asteroid, okay? And that's what, the, that's what the movie's about. So that's usually what comes to people's mind is like, even if you don't know particularly what the word Armageddon means, you probably think about end time stuff, the, the end of the world, maybe like a great obstacle that we are facing. What's the background of Scripture? instead of pop culture. Let's, let's get into that a little bit. The Hebrew word is translated here uh, literally as Mount of Megiddo. 
In the Old Testament, there is this place, this plain that's identified with that location, and it's a place where a bunch of battles between the unrighteous and the righteous take place. Near that area is also Mount Carmel, uh, which is also a place of confrontation where enemy kings and false prophets were also confronted by God's people. So Armageddon here, the theological meaning is that this is a place for battle between the righteous and the unrighteous. And in Revelation, especially in these visions that are going to come in the coming weeks, the final battle is going to be depicted in great detail, especially chapter 17 through 20. And although those chapters go into more detail of the picture of this final battle, the last bowl is going to remind us again on how this all ends. This is the seventh bowl. Let's read all of this uh, last section here, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since mankind had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation collapsed. The nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Notice again, even at the end, the emphasis that those are still in rebellion, are still cursing God, even at the very end, even as they're facing this terrible torment, they are still cursing God. This is a description, again, as I understand it, as, as this is the final judgment. It's been more intense than any of the other descriptions that have come in the other vision. This is the full cup of God's wrath that is being poured out. This is the end. Going back to verse 17, a voice from heaven declares this, it is done. And that phrase is getting at that God has fulfilled his plan. He's established his kingdom. He's executing his justice on all the earth. This is the same declaration that happens uh, in Revelation 21.6. And this is a very popular verse in Revelation when God says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Commentator Greg Beale notes how this word points not only ahead to God's purposes being wrapped up, but also back. It's a word that's connected in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you, you can go back to the gospel of John, which pictures at the end of his gospel that scene out on Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus is nailed to a cross. He is mocked, unjustly condemned, and hung there to die. And then John 19, 28 starts with this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked up a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is done. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
The Gospel of Matthew says that at that moment, the earth shook and the rocks split and tombs opened up and holy people and these saints come walking around and went into the city and appeared to people. You could say it was apocalyptic what happened there at the cross. It revealed how things really were. It unmasked that Jesus really is the Son of God. And in three days, Jesus raises from the dead because you cannot keep eternal life in the grave. The Savior defeats sin and death and crushes the head of the dragon, and that's why Satan to this day knows that his time is short. But between that fatal blow on the cross and when God wraps up history, what are we to do? And I think this is the unique theological emphasis of this vision of the seven bulls because it's one of these blessings that you find throughout the book of Revelation. You find it in Revelation 16:15, and we're going to close with this verse. This is the unique point of this vision, the unique charge to God's people. Look, I've come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. This is a third of several blessings pronounced in the book of Revelation. A couple others that you've already heard is blessed is the one who reads and hears and takes this book to heart, the book of Revelation. Also, chapter 14, blessed is those who die in the Lord and His grace. And here you have, blessed is the one that's prepared. Blessed is the one who stays awake. This person is blessed, and that word in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament theology means this is a person that lives the good life. Even if it's in the midst of difficulty, they have the joyous life. The blessed person here is prepared for Christ's second coming. He's prepared for the gospel to be fulfilled in the end of days. And that person is blessed when they live in light of that reality. This point is illustrated like a person who stays awake at night because a thief could come into the house at any moment. So you want to be ready just in case that person's going to come. If something's going to go down, you want to have clothes on that are appropriate for that occasion, right? That's what the imagery is getting at. You don't want to wear what you normally wear to bed. That'd be embarrassing if you have to take on a thief, if the whole thing, the conflict drags out in the streets and all your neighbors sees your PJs or lack thereof. That would be embarrassing, right? And so that's the imagery, the illustration that's being, being used here. Is like if that situation happens and you knew a thief was going to come into your house, you wouldn't just go to bed like normal. You dress a little bit differently. Maybe put something underneath your bed, right, that you're going to use to take on the thief, right? That would, you would be ready for a situation like that. And it's interesting, like, why the emphasis on clothing, right? And part of it is Old Testament imagery of, of shame that's uh, associated with certain ways of dressing or nakedness. Uh, but also, it's, it's, again, talking about being prepared. It reminded me of this framework of looking at clothing in a similar way that my wife has, who I think she got this way of, of looking at the world from her dad, but she doesn't wear sweatpants in public because according to my in-laws, this is like giving up on life. And so if you want to tell the world that you're giving up on life, you wear sweatpants in public. I'm, I'm always self-conscious about this in my household with this, this, this framework. I, I went on a run yesterday, and I had sweatpants on, and I guess that's acceptable, even though it's in public. But then 
immediately afterwards, we were going to go on a bike ride, and I had to ask her, is it okay if I wear sweatpants in public on a bike ride? It's still an active activity, right? It's the same thing. Like, there's certain clothing that's, that's required for certain occasions, and the illustration is getting at, if you knew this was going to go down, a thief was going to come into your house, what would you wear? How would you prepare for that time to happen? Again, this framework is applied to Christ's second coming. But Jesus is a like a thief. That's key. He's not a thief. He's like a thief. It's not that Jesus is going to come at any time into your house and steal your flat screen TV. That's not what it's getting at. He's like a thief in the sense that it's unexpected. It could happen at any time. So you have to prepare. He's, he's not like a thief in that he does bad things. He's like a thief in that he could come any time. And the application here is that that you have to be ready for this. And one of the ways that I was thinking about this, because I know this was a big application point in this vision that John wants us to have, is how even I often think about this image, and maybe how I've heard about it uh, through other reflections on this passage, is often you think about Jesus coming at any time, wrapping up history, and you think about how you don't want to be busted doing bad things, right? And it's usually applied that way. And there's a decent application. I think there's a kernel of truth that we should uh, listen to there. But if you think about the coming of Christ only in those terms that God, God's going to bust you doing some bad things and that you should be prepared by cleaning up your life and living a righteous life, that actually creates a lot of anxiety in your heart. And I don't think that's what the point of this exhortation is, especially because he's calling you into the blessed life not the condemned life. And as I was thinking about this application this week, I, and even thinking about the book of Revelation as a whole and the picture of Jesus and who he is, and not only in the book of Revelation, but the book of the Gospels, I started to be comforted at the thought that Jesus could come anytime. Not shamed about that thought. I mean, it really boils down to this, brothers and sisters, don't you want Jesus to show up now? Do you know what that's going to be like? It's not a moment of condemnation and shame. That's not what it's going to feel like when Jesus shows up in your room. Even if you are still struggling in your sin, that's finally the moment that you experience the eyes of forgiveness and grace to you. Where all that Jesus did on the cross, you're going to be reminded, you're going to be redeemed, you're going to be set free. Sometimes you think about Jesus coming back and it's like this boss that's going to show up and give you your review while you're in your pajamas in bed. That's not the picture here, right? When Jesus shows up at the end of history, this is the long-lost friend that you have longed to hang out with, that you've longed to have a cup of wine with and break bread with, and finally you get to do it. When Jesus shows up, this is the Redeemer that's going to set you free from all those burdens and all those struggles. This is the judge who's going to set right all the things in the world and injustices will be no more. When saints hear this exhortation to be prepared because Jesus could come like a thief in the night, so be ready. That is not a, a, a exercise to be anxiousness It'd be anxious and shame. No, 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 no. This is the longing of every saint's heart because we say, may it be so, and come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Amen, Amen brothers and sisters.